is our conclusion of our series, The Real Deal. Uh, and this message builds off the last two weeks that we've been together. Uh, week one, just real, by way of review, really quickly, we talked, the big idea was that the Christian life is a journey of trust in which you mature into who God says that you really are. We don't often feel like we are who God says we are, but we are something as a result of what Christ has done on the cross. We were in Galatians chapter 5. We, we introduced the idea of uh, slavery to something new, like in Paul's day, the church in Galatia, there was slavery to uh, the law. But we find ourselves in, in some sort of performance slavery even after we come to freedom in Christ, and that would be sin management, trying to please God by managing your sins, and how that self-focus and all you really do is kind of live in a cycle of guilt and shame. But we learn that trusting God with who we are that what he says of us is true is really the way that we please him. And then last week we, we, we went, actually in my Bible, it's just one page turn from Galatians chapter 5 to Ephesians chapter 2. Does your Bible work that way? If your Bible, anyways, it's just one page. I thought that was pretty clever, but maybe you don't think it's that clever. Anyways, we were in Ephesians chapter 2. And we, we, the big idea there was that God and only God can handle your sin. You remember this, this sin pile here? We talked about how... We are all, like, if, if this is me and that's God, if our viewpoint is that God's on the other side of this pile, that we feel like we need to reduce our sins so we could be close to God, that's me striving, that's me um, working, that's the sin management we talked about from the first week, but, off, but, we're on, but when we believe that we are who God says we are, we stand here with God, and it was Pastor Josh standing in for God. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it was. Uh, but when we believe God, when he says we are in right standing, in right relationship, that the penalty of our sins have been taken. You know what's funny? Well, never mind. We don't have to beat ourselves up. We beat ourselves up for sin. Sometimes we beat ourselves up for honest mistakes, craziness. But when we believe we are who God says we are, then we're standing here with God. We're, look, we still have a sin issue, but we're working on it together. That this is, this is the journey of trust. I trust him. And actually, when I stop trying to reduce my sin pile, and we talked last week, when I stop trying to reduce this thing to get to God, I actually sin less. Crazy. If you missed it, it's online. Watch the sermon. <laughs> but everything we're going to do today kind of takes those two truths and, and, and shows us uh, kind of the, the next step. Because honestly, this whole idea of working on sin and, and trusting God it's not just about how to overcome sin. or it, It's not just about taking off the mask. That's the whole idea of the series, The Real Deal. We talked about how when you have to fix your sin, since we're ineffectively fixing our sin because none of us can fix our sin, because if we could, we wouldn't need Jesus, then we end up wearing masks. We have to hide our sin. We're, we live in fear of being found out. And it's too risky to trust ourselves with others. But when you trust what God says is, about you is true, then you can take off the mask without fear. You can be the real deal, which is the name of this series. But being the real deal is not an end to itself. It's actually the first step in the, in the right direction of living a life that God has for you. I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 last week, we talked about, well, let me just read it to you. End of Ephesians chapter 2, the passage we were on, verse 10. Let's revisit that passage, which was the, the passage we were on last week. We talked a lot about who could handle sin in that passage, but then read... We didn't really dive into this. We did briefly, but I want to build on it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus 
so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is why the trusting was critical. Because God has planned good things for you, and if you spend your time trying to manage your sin, you'll never actually live out those good things because you're just so focused living in guilt and shame and not living out of who he says you are. God's plan is for you to, to impact the world that he's called you to, to make an in, a, a kingdom impact. And then we talked about, if that's true, then it must be that sin management's not just misguided zealousness, but really it would be a preoccupation that the devil would like us to be on. He would like for us to be working this pile down because he knows we'll never do it. You remember, as we work this pile down, we continue to add to the pile because we're still sinners saved by grace. We're actually saints who sin was the point last week. So we get stuck here. We never realize our destiny. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word destiny, I always think of like doing big and famous things for God. Those moments in my life that will be remembered by others. Do you think that when you think the word destiny? It's kind of a big word. Can I share with you that I, I believe that God's plans and purposes aren't just about big and famous moments. Maybe God has destined for you to do something big and famous for the kingdom, but for the rest of us. And if he has, great. Just don't let it get to your head. But for the rest of us, I believe our destiny and the, the kingdom impact that God has for us happens in the ordinary and the mundane of life. Because we live in the ordinary and mundane of life. I don't want my life to be determined by a few moments of greatness. I want my life to be lived in a way that impacts in the ordinary, the mundane, when I don't think anyone's paying attention as I stand there in line in Kroger. May my, may my attitude and my actions bring glory to God. May it make an impact for the kingdom when someone cuts me off in traffic. Today we're going to talk about how when we do the things that we've talked about these last two weeks, I believe God takes us to a place and we become the kind of people that make a kingdom impact in the ordinary and the mundane of life. And I believe that's our greatest impact that you'll have on anyone else. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, then you were left off where we left off last week, turn back a page to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to go right back to that very first passage, which seems like a cop-out. It's like, wow, Jerome doesn't have to study this week because it's the same passage. You're right. No, I'm just kidding. You're not right. This is a different message because the first time we looked at Galatians chapter 5, we looked at the very first few verses, 1 through 5. We read 1 through 6, but we really focused on the first half of that thing. Now we're going to look on the last half of that, what's called the pericope or that passage. As you turn there, let me give you a little background, just really brief context. I just said it two weeks ago so I could reduce it this week. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, which had both Gentile and Jewish Christians who were there. There were um, some people he calls the Judaizers who were saying, you have to follow the Old Testament law. You know, uh, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, us Jewish people, and therefore he has fulfilled that role as Messiah. So if we follow Messiah, we continue to do the law that Moses gave us, in particular Circumcision. Paul has some crazy things to say about circumcision. I don't want to get into it, but he, was, he spoke very strongly about it uh, in this book. That's one of my favorite things to bring up, but I don't want to bring it up right now. Anyways, <laughs> you guys know where I'm going with this? If they're so eager to circumcise, never mind. Uh, in this passage, Paul counters their argument and says, here, here's what it means 
here's how faith is shown. Here is how your faith in God is to be expressed. Because for the Judaizers, faith in God was to be expressed by going through the rituals and the rites and the, the right actions and doing the right things. Faith in God was defined by doing the right things. And Paul says, no, faith in, faith in God is defined by something else. So read with me Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Let's walk through this passage really quick, and I'll be, I promise you I'll be quick about the first five verses, but I think it's important to, to remind us where we were just two weeks ago. Paul says that we are truly free. Your Bible probably says something like, Christ said it's free for freedom's sake, right? Which sounds like Yogi Berra, like one of those nonsensical like, things that he says. I, I can't remember any of those things, but you know, like a, a dime's not worth a nickel anymore or something like that. You know, do you guys know who Yogi Berra is? I'm not talking about Yogi the Bear. Hey, boo-boo, not that guy. The, the, the like Hall of Famer, Yankees catcher, manager. Okay, Yogi Bear. All right. But he says, Christ has really set us free. And he says, don't return to slavery. And that slavery wasn't slavery from sin that he had set us free from. That slavery was the slavery to the law. Because there were those people that we refer to as Judaizers who wanted to push the Jewish religion on the Gentiles who became Christians. They wanted them to be circumcised. They wanted them to follow the law. And he says, you're going to be enslaved to that again because really what you're doing is it's slavery to the religion of human effort. It's a Christless way to justify self. It's what we talked about when we, in week one of this series. It's sin management. We're still trying to justify ourselves by what we do. There's something inside of us that just wants to help, right? It doesn't feel right getting something for free. But that's what Christ has given us. It's a free gift of grace. But there's something inside of us that just doesn't feel right. We have to earn it because we were raised that you just don't take handouts, right? We, we want something. We have to contribute somehow. We want to be the hero of the story and not dependent. Dependent sounds weak. So something inside the human nature wants us to earn it. But here's the deal. We would reject the idea of someone said, I think you're legalistic. And you'd be like, no way, I'm not legalistic. But the moment that you think what you do can bring you closer to God, you are legalistic. Because you begin to see the world as this thing's me closer to God, these are the right things to do. That's what legalism is. I know you think it's not dancing and going to movies, but it's, it includes us who dance and go to movies. I don't dance, but I go to movies. I used to before COVID. Only the Jesus movies, I promise. See, the moment we think that something that we do can bring us closer to God, we become legalistic. Nothing can bring you closer to God than what Jesus has done. It's what he has done that brings you close to God. 
by pushing circumcision, the Judaizers were saying that it's possible to be more spiritual and more pleasing to God than Jesus himself. Because what Jesus did is he gave us his status, his righteousness. So we are pleasing and spiritual as Jesus is to the Father because of what he has done. So the moment you think that you can do something, then you're thinking you're getting more than what Jesus has given you, which is his status as pleasing and his status as spiritual. You recall, I, we talked that first week about it's, a, it's about trusting God and it's a journey where we do this thing. We do have a sin issue. We are still growing, but Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and this is the reminder to you, I'm certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ returned. You see, the faith that justifies us is the same faith that sanctifies us. The faith that we put in him on day one is the faith that we need and the faith that we have every single day of our Christian life. When you ask Jesus to be your savior and your redeemer, or your, your rescuer, you're not saying, you know, just today and I'm good. It's every day I need him to be my redeemer and my rescuer. Every day I need grace and forgiveness. So let's look at verse six because verse six is, is really where I, I think we talked about in the intro of this thing, making an impact in the ordinary and the mundane. Let me read verse 6 again for you. For when you place your faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit of being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. So here's Paul's counter to the law and to circumcision as being the way that you express your faith. He says, the, the way that faith is expressed is it's expressed in love. It's not rule keeping. It's not knowing a bunch of Bible stuff because the Pharisees, man, they, they knew their stuff, but their hearts were far and they were misguided. And for us, it's not managing your sin. It's not working down this pile, but it's faith expressing itself in love. So what does faith expressing in itself, what does faith expressing itself in love mean? It means if you really trust, remember that's that, that Greek word, Pistis, translated trust, faith. Same, same, same Greek word we translate. If you really trust, if you really have faith that what God says about you is true, that you are in right standing, that you are in right relationship, that you are a new creation, that the penalty for your sin has been paid so you don't have to beat yourself up anymore and live in guilt and shame. If you really trust what God has done and who he says you are for yourself, then it stands the reason that you will trust what he says about others. And if you trust what God says about others who have called upon him, then you could interact with others with grace. You see, how you see yourself determines how you will see others. If you have to earn God's love and acceptance because you're over here working hard, then you expect everyone else to work just as hard as you. And when everyone else has to work as hard as you, they really become your competition. But if you can trust what God says of you is true and you're standing over there with him, then others are actually recipients of grace just like you. So you have one of two options in terms of a relationship with others. And, and the others is the part I'm talking about, the ordinary and the mundane, our impact for the kingdom, our destiny in this life, how we impact others. 
You could either be in a relationship of competition or in a relationship of grace. You may recall over there last summer when we were not meeting together, we were doing online service. We did a series called Ecclesia because we saw the ability to meet together again kind of off in the distance. And I said, we're going to do a series on the church and what it means to be the church and the whole idea of the church. I didn't paint a rosy picture of the church, did I? If you were, if you were here, you will remember the series. The whole thing was based on the ugly side of church, that we step on each other's toes, that we compete with one another. From the very onset of the church in the Bible, I mean, Paul wrote all these letters because humans were in the church and they were stepping on each other's toes and they were competing and there was ugliness because we bring that to the church with us. So if you're not a Christian and you're here thinking that we think we're better than you, we know that we're not. We are a mess. We're glad you're here though. But the whole series last summer was, hey, the ugly side of church is what God uses to shape us and form us and prepare us to be who he's called us to be. We have an opportunity to love for our own good and for God's glory. But there was a, there was a point that I brought out last, last, last summer and it was kind of an application point. I'm gonna use it again this year because I think right here, right now on this passage, you see the reason behind this point. And that's that grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. Some of you have, have memorized that because I know you've talked to me about it. Some of you have it carved in a piece of wood in your house. Some of you got that tattoo. No, no, I'm just kidding. Maybe you did. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. Faith expressing itself in love. And when we see ourselves in a relationship of grace with others, the love wears the face of grace. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. Relationships of grace, the impact that we make in the ordinary and the mundane of life, it melts away masks. It creates an atmosphere of trust. I can trust you with me, and you can trust me with you. It's a beautiful picture. I believe it's the way God's called us to live in community with one another. But unfortunately, it's more rare than it is common. I could trust who I am with you. And you can trust who you are with me. I don't know about you, but those moments in my life where I feel like, like I don't remember all the incidents, but I kind of have a memory. There's a lot of things we forget, especially if you have ADD. You forget a lot of stuff. But there are moments in my life when I have found myself beating myself up with guilt and shame because my performance does not measure up. I'm not seeing myself the way God sees me. I'm over here and I'm failing and I'm trying hard, but I'm just not making any progress. And I've had people look at me and say, Jerome, you don't have to, you don't have to nail yourself to the cross. Jerome, we're all human. I mean, those moments where someone says, we're all human, it's okay. It's such a breath of fresh air. Am I the only one? But for me, I was so ingrained in this kind of thinking that when someone told me that, it was like I received it, but I couldn't hold it. It was a great refreshing moment, but I still didn't necessarily connect. When someone showed me grace and someone spoke of the Father's grace towards me. That's impact. Despite the fact that I don't remember their names. That's impact.
See, sometimes we think of grace. We think of grace sometimes as saying, okay, I'm going to let you off the hook. You're guilty, but parole. That's what we do with other people when we extend grace, right? But if you're extending grace, but you're somehow resentful or prideful for doing it, then you're not extending grace. Grace is really only possible, the grace that we're called to give to one another, if we first really grasp the grace that we received. Think about it. When Matthew says, love your name, or not Matthew, when Matthew writes about Jesus saying, we should love the Lord our God, but then when, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor requires you to actually accept grace because if you're striving to please God, if you have not accepted grace, I mean, like maybe you're a Christian, you put your trust in him, but you're still living like this. If you're living like this, full of guilt and shame, you're not really love yourself the way God's called us to love ourselves. And if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you're, you, you're really unable to love your neighbor until you recognize who you are in Christ and love yourself. Then you can love your neighbor. I spent a lot of my life not loving myself, judging myself, and it was really easy to judge others. When Jesus says in John 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Man, if we live in a way that's so different than the world that they recognize that what happens here is ugly as this can be sometimes, where we step on each other's toes, but the world recognizes that there's something different about us because we love each other, because grace is the face that love wears, because our faith is being expressed in love. I used to think that spiritual maturity was knowing a whole lot about the Bible and doing the right things. But now I'm kind of convinced that, man, the spiritually mature people are the people who actually walk in love. This is why Paul writes to the church in Corinth, who looked like spiritually mature people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a famous passage that we read at weddings, which is hilarious because it's a corrective passage where he's saying, you jokers are wrong. Let me set you straight. But we read it in wedding ceremonies nonetheless. See, the church in Corinth, they were spiritual people. They were exercising spiritual gifts. But they were not doing it in love. So what does Paul say? Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. I don't know about you, but what I've read so far sounds like not compatible with this. Because when you're living this way, you're keeping record of wrong. Your own wrongs and the wrongs that people give to you. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love, loses, or love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And then verse 13, skip down. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And finally, the very chapter that we're in later on, he talks about this, the freedom that we have in Christ. And look at the subheadings in your Bible. 
by the way, not put there by Paul, but put there by the editors of your Bible. What's the, what's the subheading in verse, before verse 1? Freedom in Christ. What's the subheading before verse 16? Living by the Spirit's power. Be free. Be free of performance. Be free of slavery to the law. Be free and live by the Spirit's power. Because this is what the Spirit produces in you. Love. Oh, there's that word again. The first one on the list. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. I guess my... I guess if there's anything that you get out of this thing, it's, it's, it all builds off. I mean, you can't take this message and walk out with it without the last two weeks. And if you weren't here the last two weeks, at least without the summary. Because you have to know who you are in Christ. You've got to trust him that he says, that what he says of you is true. Otherwise, you're continuing to toil and trying to measure up. But if you already know you measure up because of what Christ has done, then you can live without constantly being obsessed with how you're doing. And you can live for the kingdom to impact others in the ordinary, in the mundane of life. Let me give you a couple of uh, takeaway points from this. First of all, become a safe place for others to fail. Once again, it goes back to you can't become a safe place for others to fail if you're not a safe place for your own self to fail. And the only way you're a safe place for your own self to fail is if you really get this grace thing. Being a safe place for others to fail is expressing itself in, is, is faith expressing itself in love. We need to sometimes change our view of others, just like we have to change our view of ourselves. Remember last week I said it's not about being, I mean it is, we are sinners saved who are saved. But on this side of Calvary, man, we are saints who sin. And if we can see one another as saints who sin, there's a whole lot of grace that goes because we recognize we've received that grace. Let me ask a question. How do you respond when people confess or confide in you? How do you respond when you observe from a distance people falling short and missing the mark? What's your go-to assessment of them? Have you ever considered that maybe people don't come to you and confess. Maybe people don't come to you and confide. Maybe people don't come to you asking for help because they already know how you're going to respond. It's not full of grace. It's not the face that love wears. See, how you assess and speak about others reveals whether or not you can be trusted with others' shortcomings. Critical people are not inviting, but grace builds trust. Second thing is this, help others change their view of self. I kind of alluded to this, to this earlier in the message. I was living over here, beating myself up, living in guilt and shame because my inability to move this pile down, actually just increasing this as I tried to get to God, not living out of my identity in Christ because of what he has done. And then there's moments where people reminded me that I stand over there. 
because of what Christ has done. I don't have to spend as much time evaluating myself as much as I do evaluating the cross. Those people have had the greatest impact on my life and I can name names. That's impact. It's not in a history book. It's not on the internet. They're just everyday, ordinary conversations that spoke life into me. Catch somebody beating themselves up with guilt and shame and remind them of the truth of the cross. Remind them of who they are because you have journeyed and wrestled and have come to a place where you know and trust that what God says of you is true and therefore what God says of them is true. I'm going to close this message by reading the full quote from Joseph Cook in his book called Celebration of Grace. It's the big idea of grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. Is It comes from this longer quote. But as I do that, I want to uh, speak to two groups first. If you are a Christian and you got this down, I think it three groups. If you're a Christian, you got this down, good. God bless you. And if you're an honest Christian, <laughs> and this is still something that you will continually drift back to, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that. Maybe some of you got it down. Good for you. But I think the most of us find ourselves going back and forth, trusting God, then falling back into this performance thing. Do you know the, the definition of religion comes from a Latin word that's like bound up, constrained, tied. That's why we talk about the Christian life is not a religion, but it's a relationship. I know I, know I kind of almost mock that because it sounds cheesy, but it's true. I can tell you, oh, I want to tell you a story, but I don't want to be on the internet telling you the story. So, man, religion kills. How many, let me tell you the story. I'll, I'll leave the names out. I brought my youth group to a, a location in, in, in the United States where there's a large religious group who runs the state. Starts with a U. Okay, you got me? We were doing, we were doing, we were doing a mission trip. We were helping rehab apartments. We were, we were giving of ourselves because I don't know if you know this, but in that particular state where religion is about performance, where you lose your ability to fellowship, you get excommunicated pretty easily. Um, there's an enormous amount of drug use and suicide. There's an enormous amount of people in that community living under religion that get kicked out of family and fellowship. There's an enormous teenager homeless thing because they're tired of performing. And it was, as a youth pastor for my youth, it was such an amazing thing for them to really grasp grace because there's no grace. It was all up to that individual to perform. That's the definition of religion, bound up. Everyone was working hard. People were tired and worn out. And there was no grace for anyone else who would stumble. Grace is the face, or let me read you the, the whole quote. Grace is nothing more or less than the face that love wears when it meets imperfection, weakness, failure, sin. 
Grace is what love is and does when it meets the sinful and undeserving. It's what enables us to see beyond one another's faults so that we can love one another without reference to whether that love has been earned or deserved. It's what God does when he reaches out in love, sinful as we are, and welcomes us into relationship with him. If you're a Christian today, and you're tired and weary, those are the last two messages. But as you journey, trusting him day in, day, day in and day out, just by trusting him, you make an impact, not because you do anything, but because you are something. It's about being who he's called us to be. Agents of grace and reconciliation. If you're not a Christian today, we're so glad you're here. I, I don't know why you'd come to church, but I think it's awesome. Um, my hope is that you hear the message of the gospel, the good news. Thank you for being here on a Sunday morning. We actually have our elders who are going to come and make themselves available for all of you. If you're non, if you're not a Christian and want to talk and know more, if you are a Christian and would like prayer, our elders are going to be available up to the front as, as we sing this last song. And I'd ask you to to use that opportunity to to pray with them. Let me close in prayer, and then we're going to sing together. Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to to gather together. May we live out of the place where we recognize that it's not in our own doing, but what you have done. Because there's freedom there. And really, it's a freedom from a preoccupation with self, the burden of self-reclamation, but we're not just freed for our freedom's sake, we're freed for your kingdom's sake to show grace and love to a world, to help people see who they are because of what Christ has done. May us, may we have that kind of impact. As, as Paul said in Ephesians, masterpieces called to do the works that you've called us to. May we be free to do those things. In Jesus' name, amen.